Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Sophia. And I'm Serena. And you're listening to Every Rom-Com, the podcast where we have fun taking romantic comedies seriously. Today in Every Rom-Com, we'll learn about the diverse, successful, and beautiful sovereign city-state of Singapore. We'll discuss the careers of a powerhouse all-Asian cast. And we'll discuss the guilty pleasures of a movie filled with conspicuous consumption as we dig into the 2018 super hit, Crazy Rich Asians. Hey, you two. Hello. Hi. So we've had a long process researching this episode, I would say. Yes? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it's a deceptively simple film. The plot is just so, you know, streamlined and breezy and you're entertained throughout the movie. But then, like, there's so many details to dig into with this movie, not to mention so many great creators. So we're going to go in depth on a lot of things. If the episode gets a little long, I'd like to remind our listeners that we have, like, timestamps in the show notes So you can skip to sections that are more relevant to you. But I hope that it'll all be very interesting. Yeah. And today uh, I wanted to like kind of pose a question to you guys. So in the movie Crazy Rich Asians, the main character, Rachel, uh, says to her boyfriend, Nick, before she finds out that he's rich, that we're economy people or no. So she says to the agents at the airport, we're economy people. And I'm kind of an economy person for travel, but I was kind of wondering, like, are there any luxurious travel experiences that you've had? Like, probably not comparable to the ones in this movie, but like, what's the most luxurious travel experience you've had? I'm trying to think. I I can't remember, but I really feel like Greg has surprised me with something, like a little something extra special on perhaps our trip to London when we took our belated honeymoon. But I now I can't remember. (laughs) But I feel like something, somewhere, there was some bit of luxury. Anything for you, Serena? I think back of, I I was a nanny for a while. Not necessarily it was like my luxury vacation, but I got to go on several luxury vacations with the family I worked for. So I got to see a lot of really over-the-top expensive things. Especially one of the reasons why I ended up moving to Colorado, because we would take these great vacations to Aspen and Vail, and I, I fell in love with it, and I just loved that. Um, obviously, I didn't live like they were living in like villas with the hot tubs and the whole thing. But yeah, I've done some really cool stuff like that. And I think probably a luxury thing that I do a lot is go on very long vacations. Uh, recently in, in 2019, we did a, a two-month South Pacific vacation, which I think time is a luxury into itself, even yeah. though the things we did weren't particularly expensive. Well, actually looking back on it, yeah, some of it really was. Um, <laughs> Cause we were like in Fiji and we flew like 17 times. Um, and that, cause we were flying to like little islands and stuff. So it, I mean that it really added up, even though I was trying to be as budget conscious as possible. So um, I really do like to take myself on, on really good vacations or really great vacations. So yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Time. Time being the luxury. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure. And then for me, I think I'm I'm I think I'm kind of good at finding luxurious things at budget prices. I think it's a skill I have. Because when my husband and I went to Paris in 2015, I found an Airbnb in Montmartre 
that had a pool that you could use. Like, and so it was like only like $95 a night. And like, Mm. there were hostels that were almost that expensive. And there we were with an apartment in one of the best sections of Paris with a pool. So I don't think I've ever spent a ton of money, like except on plane tickets to get me places. But yeah, I, I can find good deals. I have a skill. Okay, so before we get started today, uh, we just want to give you a few reminders. The first section of our show will be spoiler-free, and we'll give you a warning when we're about to discuss spoilers. We'd also like to remind everyone that you can follow the podcast on social media. Our Facebook page is Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. Our Instagram is at Every Romcom, and our Twitter handle is at Every Romcom Pod. And as always, you can find the podcast at everyromcom.com. Send us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. And if you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Okay, and now we're going to hear a little bit of the trailer for our film today, Crazy Rich Asians. Rich, we've been dating for over a year now, and I think it's about time people met my beautiful girlfriend. What about us taking an adventure east? Like Queens? Singapore. Colin's wedding. Don't you want to be my family? I hardly know anything about them. Every time I bring them up, it changes the subject. Maybe his parents are poor and he has to send them money. Let's take a bag and get you checked into first class. Nick, we can't afford this. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. I want money. 1.2 million. The Nick you're dating is Nick Young? Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian bachelor. These people aren't just rich. They're crazy rich. You really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. (laughs) Mom, this is Rachel Chu. She just thinks you're some like unrefined banana. No, no, no. Uh, Those are a few fingers. Yellow on the outside or white on the inside. Do some crazy! I chose to raise a family. For me, it was a privilege. But for you, you may think it's old-fashioned. Don't you want Nick to be happy? I know you're not what Nick needs. She's like trying to play a game of chicken with me, thinking I'm going to swerve like a chicken. But you can't swerve. You going to roll up and be like, bok, bok, bitch. So Crazy Rich Asians came out in 2018, directed by John M. Chu. And writers are Peter Chiarelli, Adele Lim, and it's based on the novel by Kevin Kwan. Crazy Rich Asians is not only an entertaining film, but it's also a very important film because it had been the first time in 25 years since the Joy Luck Club in 1993 that there had been a major Hollywood movie with a predominantly Asian cast, and it had an Asian director as well. So this created a lot of buzz for the film and a lot of people wanting to support the film to encourage greater Asian representation in Hollywood. So Crazy Rich Asians cost about $30 million to make, and it had a worldwide gross of $238 million. It definitely made somebody crazy rich to make that movie. It does have a multilingual script, and some of the sequels that are coming up are going to be China Rich Girlfriend and Rich People Problems. Um, Those things are still in pre-production. So um, there's going to be some sequels. Let's hope. Let's hope. Getting that cast together is going to be a challenge. Yeah. So the basic premise of the movie is the main character is Rachel Chu. She's an economics professor and she's dating Nick Young, who she thinks is just like a normal history professor. Nick then asks Rachel to come to a wedding with him back in his home of Singapore. And only on the plane does Rachel discover that Nick's family is rich. 
And then while visiting her friend Peg Lynn, Rachel discovers Nick's family isn't just regular rich, they are, to quote, crazy rich. And then uh, Rachel meets Nick's family and his friends and acquaintances, and a few of them are friendly, like his cousin Astrid, but there are other members of the family and wider circle that just clearly don't think Rachel is good enough to date or marry Nicholas Young, and that includes Nick's mother, Eleanor Young, which is a major part of the film. So what do you guys all, what's your general opinion of the film? I liked it. I don't know if it's one that I'm going to watch over and over again. I actually have a better appreciation for it after listening to the um, director and the author commentary of the film and what it took to make it and such. But I'll get into my thoughts about this, um, you know, class and, you know, theme of like not being good enough and marrying into different cultures and stuff like that later on. I was super, I was more entertained by this movie than I thought I was going to be. And when it first came out, I really didn't have that much interest in it. I didn't think that I would like it. But when I watched it, I laughed the entire time. I was so into it. It made me want to go to Singapore. Like I was, I, it's like, it's like changed like the next five years. Cause I think I'm, I'm going to have a trip to Singapore. <laughs> wow. Coming up. Oh, absolutely. Yes. That's awesome. That is cool. Yeah. For me, like I saw the movie when it first came out, because not only do I love rom-coms, but I've always been interested in Asian culture. Like I went on an exchange program to hi in high school to Japan and I lived in Korea for seven years. So I'm always interested in like m movies that are coming out with Asian actors. And I've, I, I used to watch a lot of foreign films too. And I had very mixed feelings when I first saw it because of the wealth aspect of the movie, just the insane wealth. But I really came to appreciate doing the research for this movie, just like how detailed everything was and just how much talent is in this movie. And and at the same time, it just goes by so breezily. I just feel like you're taken on a ride and like you're entertained the whole time. So to put that much detail and thought into something, but then still have it be just like a, a ride is kind of amazing to me. Yes, I agree. Getting into the cast and crew, the director is John M. Chu, and he's known for G.I. Joe Retribution, Step Up to the Streets in 2008, Now You See Me 2 in 2016. And then for the writers, we had uh, two writers for the screenplay, Peter Chiarelli, who is known for The Proposal in 2009, so another rom-com, and also worked on Now You See Me 2, which was with John, Chu, John M. Chu. And before that, he was mainly a producer. And then you have the other writer, Adele Lim. And this is kind of sad because Adele Lim is not going to be working on the sequels. So prior to Crazy Rich Asian, she only had TV credits. And this was given as a reason that she was offered much less to work on the sequels than Peter Chiarelli. The offer for Chiarelli for the sequel scripts was reportedly 800000 to $1 million, But Lim was only offered 110000 as a starting offer. And she found it really insulting. Uh, Chiarelli offered to share his fee with Lim, but she ended up declining. And she told The Hollywood Reporter, Pete, who is Pete Chiarelli, has been nothing but incredibly gracious, but what I make shouldn't be dependent on the generosity of the white guy writer. If I couldn't get pay equity after Crazy Rich Asians, I can't imagine what it would be like for anyone else, given that the standard for how much you're worth is having established quotes from previous movies, which women of color would never have been hired for. So like she took a stand and she at the time, though, she also had uh, already a contract with Disney. So she's one of the writers for um, Raya and the Last Dragon, which is on Disney Plus right now. And she's also attached to a future Disney animated project. 
but it's a shame she won't be able to be on the sequels for mm-hmm. Crazy Rich Asians. Man, that's frustrating. Um, okay, so moving on to Kevin Kwan, the writer of the novel. Um, he was born in Singapore and attended uh, an exclusive private school. His family moved to Clear Lake, Texas when he was 11, and he comes from a very affluent Chinese Singapore family. He has a degree in photography as well, and he worked on magazines for 16 years in New York media and such. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians came out in 2013, became a trilogy, followed by China Rich Girlfriend, Rich People Problems, and it's about the young family. And in 2020, he has another novel called uh, Sex and Vanity. It is nothing like Crazy Rich Asians, apparently, but more like E.M. Forrester's A Room with a View which Jen thought of you for that because I know it's Uh one of your faves. So that will be interesting. And Crazy Rich Asians, the novel sold more than 5 million copies and is translated into 36 languages. What? Um, Kevin Kwan was an executive producer on the film um, and will also be an executive producer on the sequels. And he was very, you know, helpful in creating, helping to create the, the aesthetic, the atmosphere, you know, design and stuff like that. And he is developing other TV shows. Um, one is like Downton Abbey meets David Lynch set in Asia. So we'll see <laughs> how that I'm goes. I'm down to watch that. And so there's going to be other notable creators in the film, including the costume designer, Mary E. Vogt, production designer, Nelson Coates, set decorator, Andrew Baseman, and Gabe Hilfer, the music supervisor. Um, And hopefully we're going to get to go more in depth with those elements later on in the show. Okay, so this movie not only has great creators, it's also got just a ridiculous cast. And we're not even going to be able to talk about all of them because they're it's just amazing. So they assembled just a powerhouse cast. The star is Constance Wu and she plays Rachel Chu. And Constance Wu is the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants And she's been a TV and movie actor since 2006. She started off in a lot of smaller roles. And then her breakout role was in the TV series Fresh Off the Boat from 2015 to 2020. And she's also known for The Feels 2017, which is a LGBT rom-com. Pretty awesome. I watched it. Hustlers in 2019. And she did recently an indie film called I Was a Simple Man in 2021, which is set in Hawaii. And then upcoming, she's got an Amazon anthology series called Solos and an Amazon thriller called The Terminal List coming up. So next up, we have Henry Golding, who plays Nick Young. Uh, No relation to me. I was very excited that it was the (laughs) the Young family. I was like, oh, my peeps. Um, He was born in Malaysia. He has an English father and a Malaysian mother. I'm assuming that's where he gets his gorgeous accent from is um, the English part. He does have some issues. Um, I was reading about him. He does have some issues being mixed race. And I can completely relate to that because... I'm mixed race too. So I kind of understand how uh, in his career, he's had issues with not belonging to a particular group or not feeling like you fit in. So I, I definitely relate to that. And I, I really felt some empathy reading that the the struggle is real sometimes when uh, you, you don't feel like you know where you belong. But he he doesn't have a, a huge a huge list of credits that he's done. He interestingly did uh, a travel show uh, for BBC. And he also did a documentary uh, where he returned to Malaysia, where his mother is part of a indigenous group called the Iban. 
and he took part in an Ebon ritual where he participated in a manhood initiation. So that's really cool. Um, he has been in a few movies, A Simple Favor, Last Christmas, uh, Monsoon, The Gentleman, and he does have some upcoming projects. So Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins, The Tiger's Apprentice. And I just wanted to note that The Tiger's Apprentice will also have Leah Lewis from the half of it, which was our fourth episode we did. And she was the lead actress in that. So that's pretty cool. So Michelle Yeoh is our other star. She's amazing. She's born in Malaysia to Chinese parents and spoke English and Malay before Cantonese. She studied ballet at the Royal Academy of London. She won Miss Malaysia, which led to an acting in a commercial with Jackie Chan. Her first starring role was Yes, Madam uh, in 1985. And she played a police inspector and performed her own stunts. So she's starting to do her own stunts, but she has no formal martial arts training. She learns from her onset trainers, which is amazing. Um, She's also known for Super Cop uh, in 92. That was with Jackie Chan. Wing Chun, Tomorrow Never Dies. That was her first U.S. role. And then Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon in 2000. Memoirs of a Geisha in 2005, Sunshine in 2007, Kung Fu Panda Part 2 in 2011, and uh, Star Trek Discovery from 2017 to 2020, um, and Last Christmas in 2019. And Rotten Tomatoes voted her the greatest action heroine of all time in 2008. And Jackie Chan said in his memoir, not many people can match me in my willingness to go for it. Michelle Yeoh is one of them. And John Chu said in a GQ interview that she should have much more recognition and she should be on the same level as Meryl Streep. I I agree. I agree. Yep. Her upcoming works include Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings, Minions, The Rise of Gru, (laughs) uh, Gunpowder Milkshake, and The Tiger's Apprentice, and The School for Good and Evil, and Avatar sequels two through five. Yeah, I can't even believe they're making that many, but whatever. Yeah, that is. That's, some, that's some money right there. <laughs> yeah. right. Make those movies. So Aquafina was kind of considered the breakout star of Crazy Rich Asians, even though she's in the best friend role, which is sometimes like a thankless role in a rom-com. But in this movie, it is very much not a thankless role. She really does everything she can with that part. And her actual name is Nora Lum. She's a native New Yorker. And her mother is a South Korean immigrant who died when she was four. She has a Chinese-American father. And she's really close to her paternal grandmother. And this kind of shows up in some of her autobiographical work. And she adopted a stage name Aquafina at 16, which I think she was primarily using for rap videos. So she has a rap video called My Vag, which was kind of a breakout you know, <laughs> moment on YouTube in 2012. And she also she has two rap albums. Aquafina also became really prominent after Crazy Rich Asians for being the first Asian American actor to win a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Feature Film for The Farewell in 2019. And she's really great in that role. So I super recommend checking that out if you haven't seen it. She's also known for several other movies, including Ocean's 8 in 2018. And she's done a lot of voice work like Angry Birds 2, The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, The SpongeBob Movie. And I also started watching some of her Comedy Central show called Aquafina is Nora from Queens. And that is super autobiographical, super hilarious. Like if you if your favorite thing from this movie is is her humor, you've got to check out her show. 
Like it's just like that supercharged. And she's currently in something called Breaking News in Yuba County, which looks intriguing because it's a got a great cast, including Allison Janney and Mila Kunis. And she's also in Ryan the Last Dragon, which Adele Lim was one of the writers on. She's also, like many of the others, going to be in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which is an MCU movie. And a couple other great things coming up, including a voice acting part in The Little Mermaid. But Aquafina, for me, when I first saw the movie, was definitely my favorite part of the movie. And I think the same for a lot of other people. All right, moving on. So we've got Gemma Chan, who plays the ethereal Astrid, if you ask me. Uh, she is British, a former model, obviously. Her parents are originally from Hong Kong and China. She did begin acting in 2006, and she mostly is, has some smaller roles. If you guys remember the TV show Secret Diary of a Call Girl, uh, she did. She was in the sci-fi drama Humans. She also had a small part in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, she was in a Captain Marvel movie and Let Them All Talk. That was directed by Steven Soderbergh with Meryl Streep. She was also in Raya and the Last Dragon. So some upcoming projects she has is Eternals, which is coming out uh, this year in 2021, which is directed by Chloe Zhao of Nomadland. Okay, so in this movie, we've also got a number, like besides the main cast, we've got a number of great stand-up comics or primarily known for stand-up comedy who are also actors. Uh, Ken Jeong is like one of my favorites. Um, He's really best known for uh, Community, the TV show. And he played Ben Chang on that from 2009 to 2015. If you've not seen Community, you've got to go out and see Community. And he is one of the best parts of that show. And he's also just done a lot of other movie work. A lot of people know him from The Hangover and its sequels. He had a role in Knocked Up. Uh, he had a TV show called Dr. Ken. And this is interesting because he's actually a doctor. So he's still licensed to practice medicine in addition to being a stand-up comedian and an actor. And he's, awesome. when I looked at his IMDb, he has played a lot of doctors in movies, which is hilarious. Can you imagine if you go <laughs> yeah. to a doctor's appointment and he's your doctor? You're like, that, yes. it, that would rule. <laughs> yeah, that would rule. I'm sure his bedside manner is fantastic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Our next, uh, he's a comedian too, Ronnie uh, Chang. And he plays Eddie Chang in the film. And he was uh, he's Chinese. He was born in Malaysia and raised in the U.S. and Singapore and attended university in Australia. He um, most well-known as a, uh, as a comedian and correspondent on The Daily Show uh, from 2015 to 2019. And I love this. He did a takedown of O'Reilly and Waters World. O'Reilly Factor gets racist in Chinatown. It is a must-see. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. That was brilliant. That was Wonderful. Um, he's also known um, for Ronnie Chang, international student. Ronnie Chang, Asian comedian, destroys America. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen that. It's good. <laughs> um, Bliss. And I like this. Long story short is coming up in, oh, 2021. It's a rom-com. And coming up is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Next up, we've got Jimmy O. Yang that plays Bernard. Bernard's kind of like the playboy D-bag in the movie. Um, (laughs) He was raised in Hong Kong. He moved to the U.S. when he was 13. Interestingly enough, he's worked in finance and as a strip club DJ before doing stand-up. So I think a lot of that played out in this movie. Uh, He's known for the TV show Silicon Valley, 
the TV show Space Force and Fantasy Island. Uh, he also has done some stand-up specials. One of them in particular is called Good Deal. And he wrote How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. I can definitely relate to that. And um, upcoming, he's got Love Hard, which is another rom-com, at, but it's in post-production. So looking forward yeah. to that. Okay, and then we there's so many great actors in this movie. We don't have time to talk about them all, but I'll just go over some of them really quick. Nico Santos plays Oliver, who is friendly towards Rachel, and he's from the Philippines and known for Superstore. Uh, Lisa Liu plays Ama, the grandmother, and she was, interestingly, in the Joy Luck Club, which was the last time we had that all-Asian cast in a Hollywood movie, plays one of the mothers in that movie. Uh, Keng Hua Tan uh, plays Rachel's mother, she is from Singapore, and she did a lot of work in Singapore and Malaysia. And Sonoya Mizuno plays Araminta Lee, who is actually getting married in the wedding. And she's done a lot of work, including in La La Land. And she is going to be in the Game of Thrones prequel show, House of the Dragon. So I'm sure that'll be huge. And Chris Pang plays Colin Koo, the man who's getting married in the movie. And he is also known for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Sword of Destiny, and the Charlie's Angel reboot in 2019, and Palm Springs in 2020. And then this was super interesting to find out. So Chris Aquino plays Princess Intown, who appears in the wedding scene, and she is actually the youngest daughter of Corazon Aquino, who was the 11th president of the Philippines and the first woman president of the Philippines. And her brother was also a president of the Philippines at one time. And she's a huge media personality, I guess, in the Philippines now. She's kind of dubbed the queen of all media. And she does work as an actress, producer, TV host. So that was just an interesting little tidbit in this movie to have such a prominent person, you know, even outside of the acting world. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, great cast. Wish we could t- go more in depth to all of them. Okay, and so now we're going to talk a little bit about Singapore. Singapore is an amazing country to learn about. I was, I think Americans have a fair amount of stereotypes about it, but it's just much more complex than what we realize. It is a sovereign island and a city-state. Uh, it's comprised of Singapore Island and about 60 smaller islets. And it's only about 85 miles north of the equator, so it's super hot. And it's off the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula. Its name, Singapura, means Lion City. And they've got this really cool symbol for Singapore called the Merlion, which has the head of a lion and the body of a fish. There's different you know, theories on why that is. Some, some people think it's from Buddhism. Some people think somebody spotted a tiger and mistook it for a lion in their history. I don't know. They have a population of 5.8 million people, but they're just crammed into this very small space. Uh, the country is 200 times as densely populated as the United States. It's one of the most densely populated countries in the world. And one thing I was really interested in about Singapore is it has a really diverse population. So Chinese people do make up about three quarters of the population, but there are also Malays and Indians. And there's diversity within the populations. Like, for example, Chinese people speak different dialects or who came to Singapore at different times, which is alluded to in the movie. And there's religious diversity. So Buddhism is the main religion, but there's also a big Christian population, Muslim population, Taoist population, and then like a lot of secular and other religions too. And the country has four official languages, English, Mandarin Chinese, Malay, and Tamil. And English is mainly used for commerce and in schools. 
They also have what is called Singlish, which is English mixed with colloquialisms. So you hear a little bit of that in the movie, but there's a lot more of it in the book. And and he'll like, Kevin Kwan kind of like defines what those words mean, which is pretty interesting. And really quickly, the history of Singapore, the earliest record of settlement in Singapore is in the second century. And the original inhabitants were basically fishermen and pirates. It was kind of used as an outpost for the Sumatran Empire and attacked by various other rulers and empires in the early years. And there are records of it being an active port as far back as the 1500s. And then in January 1819, Sir Stamford Raffles of the East India Company landed in Singapore. At the time, there were very few people there. I think I read like 150 people, right? So he ended up purchasing land in Singapore and then eventually purchased the entire island by 1824. And Singapore became uh, sort of an outpost of the British Empire. It became a separate crown colony in 1946. And it began developing a democratic government. It was self-governing by 1959. And briefly, Singapore was going to join Malaysia, which it's quite close to geographically. But not everyone in the country was happy with that. So they ended up becoming their own independent state, August 9th, 1965. And in the 70s, Singapore just began really focusing on economic growth and focused on trade and export manufacturing. And they've also had a big growth in tourism especially since 2008. And so one of the things themes of this movie is obviously wealth. And Singapore is a very wealthy country. It is considered the most advanced economy in Southeast Asia, but they have like basically no natural resources. So their economy is, a lot of it is from the seaport, uh, a lot of its financial services. They do manufacture electronics and machinery and of course tourism. And the government has also intervened a lot to kind of encourage Singapore's wealth. And one of the things they did that was really important was making public housing for the labor force. So 80% of the people in Singapore actually live in high-rise government-built apartments, which doesn't sound great, but they don't look too bad from what I can tell. And there's also healthcare for people. However, there's like enormous economic inequality in Singapore, there's over 269,000 millionaires as of 2019, but inequality, it, it ranks pretty high on the list of unequal economies, at least as far as first world nations go. Although apparently the U.S. is worse for inequality. Um, so, yeah, there's so much to understand about Singapore. This is just like a real quick glossing over. But I really encourage people to like learn more about this country because it's so interesting. Wild. How many millionaires? <laughs> That number in itself is a big number. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Holy cow. Well, also remember it's a big population too, but yeah, it is a lot. And all, one of the reasons that, that also might be is apparently it is ranked as one of the, by the World Bank as one of the easiest places to do business in the world. And the government's put a lot of tax incentives for pe- bis- people and businesses to move there. So there's a, just a number of things go into why they're like kind of a thriving economy. Okay. So we are going to now do something we did with Roman Holiday, and we're going to try to give you all the the plot of the movie, but by, by also talking about the movie locations in, in Singapore and elsewhere as we go. And we will tell you when we're going to get into spoilers, so don't worry about that. But yeah, just sit back and enjoy the ride, basically. So the movie opens, actually, in 1995. So it's kind of one of those like flashback scenes, and it's supposed to be set in London, 
where Eleanor Young and her family have reserved a suite at this hotel, which is called the Calthorpe Hotel. But it's it's not a real hotel. It's just a fictional one invented for the story. And they show up to the hotel kind of soaking wet from the rain. And the staff at the hotel is kind of racist and snobby. And they deny Eleanor's reservation. So Eleanor solves the problem by going out to a phone booth, calling her husband. And then in kind of a surprise for the audience, you find out that Eleanor's husband has bought the entire hotel and the current owner comes out and greets her and the the racist staff have to be all like, you know, kind of supplicating themselves to her. And it's, it's kind of a cool moment in a way. Although, like, I thought it was like a little, I think it's a little funny that the solution to racism is you have to buy the whole hotel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it worked. It did work, yeah. The actual hotel, like, where they shot it is located in Penang, Malaysia, and it's called the Eastern and Oriental Hotel. And it has, like, kind of an interesting history. It was established in 1885, and it was established by the same people who founded the Raffles Hotel in Singapore, which we're going to see later in the film. And it's located next to the ocean. It's had really famous guests, including Somerset Mom, Charlie Chaplin, and Douglas Fairbanks. And they actually have kind of reasonable price suites there. Like you can get one for as low as $92. So if you're ever in Penang, you can go to one of the sites in Crazy Rich Asians. I can do that. Um, So next Nick asks Rachel to go to Singapore. Conversation is overheard, um, setting off a chain of texts ending with his mother. I like the way they had all the different texts popping up on the screen. Like sometimes that seems cheesy, but the way they did it in this movie, I just really appreciated it. It, it, It's wild, right? Like it's overheard. And like, what is it? One or two texts away and you're in a different country. And yeah. Yeah, and they show you snippets of backgrounds of the different people who are sending and receiving the texts, too. So it's like, it's not boring at all. You're like just being whisked around the world, like, yeah. with the texts. And then this scene, um, which is supposed to be set in New York, was actually set in Kuala Lumpur at something called the BLVD House. That location's now closed anyway. So on the plane, Nick gives a rundown of his cousins. Uh, can I just do a little side note on the plane? I actually looked up that flight uh where they're in that fancy suite on the airplane from, and there is a flight on Singapore airlines that goes from New York city to Singapore. And those, those suites exist. And it's about $23,000 to take, to take that first class ticket. Yeah. One way, one way. So I was, uh, yeah, that's a good plane ride. Um, so during that plane ride, that's when Rachel kind of finds out. Obviously, she steps on this plane and they're in this fancy first class suite. And she's like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> you dropped $23,000 on my ass. And he starts to talk about Astrid, um, his cousins, Astrid, who's fashionable and warm hearted. He talks about Eddie, uh, who's obsessed with image and family. And also he talks about Alistair who um, is dating Kitty Pong. She's a not very good actress, it looks like, in Asian action films. I, I, mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't familiar with that genre. Yeah. But, uh, they're, they're not super important characters, but it's just kind of giving you this overview of yeah. who are like, the other people yeah, yeah. in the universe. So finally, Nick and Rachel, after their luxurious flight, they arrive in Singapore and they're greeted by Colin Koo, who is his best friend and the person who's getting married, where he's going to be the best man in the wedding, and Colin's fiance Araminta. 
And this is, this happens at the, on the internet, there's a million ways that people have said you're supposed to pronounce this, but I found a source that seemed to be from Singapore and it said that you should call it Chungi Singapore Airport. So I don't know. It's, it's spelled C-H-A-N-G-I. And it has been listed as one of the, the world's best airport for like eight consecutive years as of 2020. And there's a reason for that. It's got ridiculous amenities, like a tropical butterfly habitat with a thousand plus species. There's a 24 hour movie theater that's free. Uh, there's a rooftop pool. I don't know if that's free, but I think it might be actually. And they added in 2019 after this movie was made something called the Jewel Tongi uh, area, which is an entertainment and shopping area. And it has the world's tallest indoor waterfall, which is 131 feet high. And the whole place is covered in greenery, like an indoor jungle. And there's a 75 foot high canopy bridge with a glass bottom, you know, in addition to just like food and retail, et cetera. If you ever want to spend time at an airport, I guess this would probably be the airport you'd want to spend time at. Wouldn't it be wild if you just flew to the airport? You're like, I'm going to spend a day here and then just go back home. Like, oh, yeah, like that leave? one Tom Hanks movie would have been a lot right, more yes, cheerful. Terminal. Like, that would be the place. You'd be like, if I could be stuck somewhere, it's going to be at this joint. Wow. I think it would be crazy to start out in the shithole that is JFK and then end up at the Chungi airport uh, <laughs> like hours later and be going from like the Flintstones to the Jetsons or something. You'd be like, whoa, I'm in the, another world. I, I hate, oh, yeah, I hate New York the airports. Gr- They're the fucking worst. <laughs> I left oh. because I had to fly out of LaGuardia. I know. All the time. And they're, LaGuardia yeah, they're awful. awful. Anywho, That's sorry. Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So let's see. Okay. This might be one of my favorite scenes. Um, on their way from the airport, they drive by Singapore landmarks. One of them is Art Science Museum at Marina Bay Sands. And it looks like a flower. Some current exhibits are the Star Wars artifacts and global plastic pollution. They also drive by something called the Singapore Flyer, and that was like the tallest observation wheel in the world until something called the High Roller was built in Las Vegas. And so it's currently the second tallest. And some people in Dubai are trying to build another one, so it'll be the third tallest. I don't know. But it's 98 feet taller than the London Eye, and each capsule could have 28 passengers if it's 98 feet taller than the London Eye, which is already very high and I've been on, like, that's it. That's good enough. I don't need to go 100 feet higher in the air. So our next scene is where Rachel and Nick, Colin and Arminta eat at a hawker center. And for those of you that don't know what a hawker center is, it's basically like a food court at a mall. It's a place where there's a lot of uh, food stalls. Um, This particular hawker center is called the Newton Food Court, and it's actually Kevin Kwan's favorite, and he's the the writer. Some dishes they eat that are worth trying is satay, which is marinated meat on a stick. Mm, Sounds good to me. Ice kachong, which is shaved ice sweetened with syrup, condensed milk, toppings such as peanuts, grass jelly, sweet red beans. Uh, There's also chili crab. And Hokkien mee, which is stir-fried egg and rice noodles. Yeah, that scene made me so hungry, even though I could barely eat any of the food they were eating because I'm vegan. But I was like, still like so. <laughs> yeah. Well, they talked about there being like Michelin star vendors here. Like this yeah. is awesome, 
awesome food. It made me hungry too. And I'm not even sure I would, how I fare with like flavors and stuff. So then next you see Rachel and Nick staying at their hotel, which in this movie is the Raffles Hotel. And it was built in the 1830s as a private house, but opened as Raffles in 1887 by the same people who did the other hotel we've already seen in the opening scene, which is an Armenian Armenian brothers named the Sarkis. And the hotel itself was named after the British statesman Sir Stamford Raffles, who's the one who originally bought Singapore, basically. And interestingly enough, this hotel is where the Singapore sling was created, the cocktail. I've never had one, but I've heard the name. And it was created around 1915 at the hotel's Long Bar. And the hotel also holds like boutiques and restaurants. And rooms there are pretty pricey. They start at $730 a night was one of the best deals I saw on the internet. So in our next scene, Rachel visits college friend Paik Lin, and this is where she finds out Nick is quote-unquote crazy rich. Uh, Paik Lin lends her a dress, and when they go to her house, it's kind of gaudy. Um, <laughs> am I right? It's, it's pretty gaudy. Mm-hmm. It's like the nouveau, the nouveau riche of Singapore, and it kind of yeah. seems like Rachel's a little taken aback, like, oh, this is lovely i mean don't they say like when it's pretty gaudy like don't they say it's like donald trump's toilet which i thought was yeah, fucking yeah. hilarious yeah they said it's like the hall of mirrors at versailles or donald trump's bathroom <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so yeah in this scene like too the reason picklin like lends rachel address is because nick has like totally inadequately prepared rachel for this vacation by not saying how rich he is and like she's wearing this like really simple red dress that her mom thought would be impressive to like a regular chinese family because it's like symbolizes luck or fertility but like picklin immediately realizes that she's wearing a totally inadequate dress and gets her a new dress so mm-hmm. i thought that was like a really good friend moment in terms of the location for the picklin's house the go house the the best guess i found on the internet through research is that the exterior is a dempsey hill neighborhood in singapore but the interior seems to be the best i can find the royal museum in kuala lumpur because like in the in this making of video, Aquafina says it is the Sultan of Malaysia's old house. So like she was saying, I was using the Sultan of Malaysia's old closet. So the interior scenes are probably from like this royal museum, which explains the gaudiness and the gold, etc. I also appreciate the part and the director and Kevin Kwan talk about it in the commentary. They use a, a tool, a prop, which makes such great sense, a purse that has a map on it. Pinklin is showing Rachel where they are in the world. And I'm like, Oh, good, good. Thank you for that. Like that was very helpful. That was strategically done. And (laughs) I appreciated that. Um, And it also showed where like the, the old money Chinese, like the youngs came from as, or when they came to Singapore, as opposed to the new money families, like the goes. And that like, it was a really intelligent way of setting up that dynamic. I agree. It didn't feel like exposition, but it was. Right, right. Agreed. Well, from this new money, we go then to Amma's house, where um, this is where Rachel's going to meet all of Nick's family. So she commits a bunch of faux pas. She gets scrutinized by almost everyone except Astrid and is it Ollie or Oli? Ollie, like Oliver. And this is Amma's, uh, she seems to do this party all the time. And it's to watch these flowers bloom. The Tom was, yeah. Uh, but those that location was two abandoned mansions that they transformed, truly transformed for the film to create this 
sense of wealth and that this had been here for a long time. Um, I can maybe touch on that more later, but it, um, also the commentary in the film talks a lot about that and it's worth, worth hearing. So. And like one thing I noticed about this scene is like a ton of the plot in the movie actually takes place just in this one scene. Like you don't feel like you're in the scene forever, but you really meet a lot of people. And Rachel has to undergo like a lot of questioning from people and judgment from people about her like single mom. And like they're trying to guess which shoes she comes from, like like try, trying to say she comes from the plastic shoes or the packing yeah. peanuts shoes or whatever. But like, you know, realizing eventually that she's just, you know from New York, just kind of boring old, like not rich person. And yeah, she just get, undergoes so much scrutiny. And then one of the faux pas, she like mistakes the nanny, Nick's old nanny for the grandma, Ama. Yeah. And, yeah. But actually like at this party, her like uh, encounter with Ama doesn't actually go that bad, but the mom is already kind of like, right. Like, oh, you're so American. So uh, next up, we've got the um, the bachelorette and bachelor parties are the next scenes. Uh, doing some research on this, uh, they both took place in Langkawi, which is in Malaysia. And it's it's several islands in Malaysia. So it, they kind of hop around. Uh, Arminta's bachelorette party specifically takes place at a Four Seasons resort called Four Seasons Resort Langkawi. Um, it is a five-star hotel. It is actually kind of reasonably priced. I mean, for some people, uh, mm -hmm. the rooms could be as low as $271 a night. Uh, but it, it definitely goes up from there. Uh, some of the rooms in the villas are as much as $16,000 a night. In, in that, the bachelorette scene, some of the other girls, which may felt like they were rivals with, uh, Rachel are mean to her first like everyone's having a good time but then later on that night some of the girls uh, put a, a dead fish in her bed <laughs> and and they scrawl on the wall what do they scrawl on the wall like you you gold digging bitch or some shit yeah um mm -hmm. typical mean girl stuff you know like how dare you take our most eligible bachelor away from us uh kind of thing and then uh the opposite side of that is nick's bachelor party where he gets uh, whisked away in a bunch of helicopters which was yeah. insane yeah um, and can i can i put in here like that they i've figured out that they're referencing a scene in apocalypse now with the helicopters and the oh music, yeah like, they totally were helpers, which yeah. i haven't actually seen apocalypse now but even i like oh. recognize the reference and like uh, wasn't apocalypse now like kind of like racist i don't know or maybe it was commenting on racism towards Asians. I'm not sure. Apocalypse oh. Now? Yeah, wasn't uh, it in some way? I mean, isn't it about Vietnam and like... I mean, I guess in the general sense that Vietnam was a racist war. But I'm just trying to I, figure out like why they use that reference. And like, like if anyone knows a lot about Apocalypse Now, like... I don't. I just thought it was like a soldier who goes crazy. Well, I thought it was interesting they referenced that scene anyway. I was like, that seems important. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. So they go in the helicopters and I guess Nick doesn't really know what's happening or what he's into. So this is all a surprise. And the helicopters end up landing on a giant floating cargo ship in the middle of the ocean. It's like in international waters. Like, doesn't that mean like a lot of things are legal or like nobody's going to check on them? Isn't is like that a thing? Oh, interesting. It is. Yeah. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, because they do all kinds of crazy sh- stuff. They're like shooting a bazooka or something. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. a little over the top, but awesome. It looked like there was a lot of dancing and... Yeah, I can't really think of anything that was like specific that stood out to me other than that it, there was a cargo ship. Oh, can I also party. point out that I, I also want to point out that in the book it's a totally different bachelor party. It is actually more debauched. Like I can't I can't pronounce the place they go. Macau, M A C A U, but like they go they go there and like Bernard in the book is having them like try to he wants them to like film sex tapes with prostitutes, go to an illegal <laughs> dog fight. And, um, and and do a lot of cocaine. And like, so in both situations, Colin and Nick end up escaping the bachelor party via like a helicopter. But like in the book, it's even more like, like, Whoa. like extreme, basically. Wow. Well, they get, they leave. <laughs> yeah. And that's when they're, they're on the Lankawi, the archipelago. While the guys are in international waters, and like I thought it was also interesting that the girls, like the resort they go to is called Samsara Island. And I think like it's supposed to be like you're supposed to think, oh, it's a new age mystical, like enlightened experiments experience, the way that Armand is talking about it. But actually, Samsara is like what you don't want in Buddhism. It's like hmm. the cycle of life, death, and rebirth and suffering. What you actually want in Buddhism is nirvana. So I thought that was kind of maybe a cheeky joke on the part of the writers at the director. Like having them go to this like mystical enlightened island, but really they're like putting themselves in the cycle of death and rebirth instead. <laughs> interesting. Very hmm. interesting. <laughs> this scene is also important because as far as I know, it's not. Astrid isn't here during in the book. No, there's a and different they, character who's friends with Astrid in the book. Yeah, yeah. but the for the movie's sake, they it helped, um, you know, strengthen Astrid and Rachel's relationship, and that they're you know allies and stuff like that. So, oh yeah, that's because, super important too. Yeah, because yeah, Astrid, you know, tells Rachel her troubles with her marriage and things like so. Yeah, yeah, her husband's cheating on her. And isn't yeah. it also like he he doesn't feel acceptable for the family. He doesn't have the money. Yeah. And that is yeah. a, a source of strain on their relationship. Yeah. Perhaps a so cautionary that, tale to Rachel, you know. That's kind of the parallel relationship in the in the movie that yeah. I think Rachel and Nick are being paralleled with. Yeah, Astrid and Michael, for sure. So after the the bachelor bachelorette parties, Rachel and Nick are back in Singapore. And this is a lovely scene where they're making dumplings at Amma's house. And Eleanor tells Rachel the origin of her wedding ring her and Eleanor's relationship with Amma. Eleanor like makes like, she's going to like make nice with Rachel and they're going to like, she reveals things to her, but it ends up being kind of uh, a little bit of a trick. So this is a scene from after they're making the dumplings where Eleanor goes to talk to Rachel. I'm glad I found you. I'm afraid that I've been unfair. Oh, no, you know what? I'm sorry I made an assumption. I didn't mean to offend you. Not at all. You asked about my ring. The truth is, Nick's father had it made when he wanted to propose to me because Amma wouldn't give him the family ring. I wasn't her first choice. Honestly, I wasn't her second. Gosh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I didn't come from the right family, have the right connections, and Amma thought I would not make an adequate wife to her son. But she came around, obviously. It took many years, and she had good reason to be concerned. 
Because I had no idea the work and the sacrifice it would take. There were many days when I wondered if I would ever measure up. But having been through it all, I know this much. You will never be enough. That scene is brutal. <sighs> that scene is so brutal. So brutal because they're standing on the staircase and she, you know, closes in on Rachel and Rachel has to step down as if she's not already been cut down enough. And oh, beautiful. And, and she you puts also her hand on Rachel's face too. Oh, like, I know. Like she's going to be like till the last second, you think this is a touchy moment where they're going to make a connection with each other. Mm-hmm. And you also see that even though, you know, it's taken many years for Eleanor to quote unquote be accepted. You see Ama cut rate Eleanor down a lot too. Oh, yeah. That she yeah. still doesn't have her full approval. And oh, and I think uh, we forgot to mention this earlier that like like there's a thing that happened in the past where like because Ama disapproved of Eleanor so much marrying her son, Eleanor sent Nick to live with his grandma for a large part of his childhood. So that maybe he would be the favored, you know, grandson. And he ends up being the favored grandson, but it's like this huge cost to Eleanor to have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. huge. So we're going to enter the spoilers. Okay. Section now. So this like gives us a, you know, free reign to say whatever we want that connects to the end of the movie. So if you haven't seen the movie, you don't want to be spoiled. This is your chance to bow out right now. All right. You've been warned. After the dumpling making, Rachel's pretty downcast because Eleanor's just basically brutalized her with words. So she talks to her friend Picklin about Mrs. Young. And Rachel's like thinking maybe she won't go to the wedding. But then Picklin's like, no, you have to like, like, you have to go. You have to earn her respect, you know, even if she doesn't like you. And then Rachel thinks, decides that it must be like a game of chicken to which Aquafina's character's like, bok, bok, bitch. (laughs) And... This scene takes place at the patio of something called the Humpback Restaurant in an area called Bucket Paso Road. And that area is apparently known for like really good restaurants. And the Humpback Restaurant is still open and is known for fresh oysters, seafood and cocktails. So it's got some pretty nice scenery in that area, too. So in the next scene, Pinklin and Oliver give Rachel her second makeover which is a fun scene because they, oh, it's my favorite. They, you know, they, they goof around and uh, everybody's hilarious. And um, that's a fun little montage. So Rachel attends the wedding and she sits with princess Intan and talks economics and she and Nick make lots of eye contact and, and you almost feel as if it's their wedding, right? Um, yeah, it's very, I thought that was super interesting that you have a rom-com where there's a wedding, but like the focus is totally not on the people getting married at all. It's yeah. totally, it's totally on them. And like um, the reason it's important that, to say too, that like, um, she gets snubbed by everybody at the wedding, yeah. like yeah. the family. But Princess Inton is supposed to be like not want anyone to sit by her. They're like she wants she requested her own role, you know. But Rachel doesn't know this, and Rachel goes up to her and talks about some paper she wrote on microloans. And like, even though she's snubbed by the whole family, she ends up sitting by like the most exclusive, prestigious person at the entire wedding, which yeah. is kind of badass. Yeah, yeah, so badass. Uh, the location is um, 
Chimes Hall in Singapore. It was originally a convent uh, in 1854 and is now an event hall with a dining complex in the back. So it's still there. You can see it. Yep. Uh, so the next scene is at the wedding reception, and it's it's kind of a nasty scene. Uh, when Eleanor reveals uh, information that she dug up on Rachel's family, it turns out that Rachel's mother had been married, uh, cheated on her husband, and then left China with Rachel. And I, I, it's assumed that Rachel is the product of this affair. So yeah, no, no, she so, is like, yeah, yeah. So, so basically like, she's like the bastard, which I I've actually, um, I've talked to some people and that's actually a big deal for some families. Um, it's never anything that I've ever thought about, but, um, being illegitimate, uh, is, is huge. I've had many conversations with people about that and how it, it carries with them. So I kind of understand how this scene, um, how shameful that is to a yeah. family that would hold like lineage so important, you know? They also think she's been deceiving them deliberately, which she hasn't, but they assume that she's been deceiving Nick and she's trying to get the money, et cetera. So like, that's like a double, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. insult. Yeah. It kind of turns out that Rachel doesn't know this either. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? So, that, it so it's a, it's a, a surprise to her. So that's yeah. like a double whammy. Yeah, it goes from being this beautiful wedding reception, which is by at the Gardens by the Bay, uh, Super Tree Grove in Singapore, like a beautiful location with great music and everything to being like a nightmare. And like mm. all the all the angles of the film start to kind of be tilted and there's people laughing in a menacing way. It reminds me kind of of like the menacing part of the Masquerade Pauline Labyrinth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I was trying yeah, to think yeah, of yeah. what it reminded me of and that's what it reminded me of. But it becomes like nightmarish really quickly. And she has to run back to pick lens. Do you guys want to say more about the scene or should we talk about the super tree grove? Talk about the super trees. So the, and again, the scene is filmed at the gardens by the bay, specifically in the super tree grove section and the super trees, they look like these kind of like giant mechanical trees, but they actually do have greenery growing on them, like like kind of vertical gardens. And they range from 82 to 164 feet tall. And you can actually have free admission to this place if you go to Singapore. And the the whole complex of Gardens by the Bay also has two domed conservatories. But the Super Tree Grove is like a big highlight. And it's just a beautiful location. At night, it's all lit up. And they sometimes do like music and light shows. And at this point, you can also like go up to a skyway that connects some of the super trees and an observation deck. So like if I went to Singapore, I would definitely hasten there. Like even though, you know, the scene in the movie is kind of becomes a little bit nightmarish. And apparently it's also kind of eco-friendly because it's like solar powered. Some of the super trees serve as air vents and they're also all providing shade in a really hot country, which I thought was interesting. I like solar powered. It does look impressive. It looks wild. And it would be cool to see. Okay, so uh, Rachel is at Pinklin's house. She's in bed and depressed until her mom comes. And we find out this is where her mom mom explains, like, what happened with her husband. She had this affair because her husband was a bad man. And he treated her badly. And she fell in love with somebody else and got pregnant and left. And um, she also tells Rachel that it was Nick who flew her out to be with Rachel, which is beautiful. And she urges her to, for for Rachel to talk to Nick again. 
So uh, Nick proposes and he says he's going to leave his family behind. Yeah. And the proposal scene takes place at Esplanade Park, uh, which is a free park that you can just visit by the water in Singapore. And then Rachel, so the scene cuts. We don't know what she says. And Rachel goes to meet Mrs. Young at a Mahjong uh, Hall and reveals she's refused Nick's proposal because she didn't want him to lose his family. And that location is the Blue Mansion in Penang, Malaysia. Um, From the late 19th century, um, it was a house turned into a hotel. So I don't want to play the clip right now. Sophia, do you want to give some details on the Mahjong scene? Because I know you researched it and it's super Yeah, I mean, there was so, so much symbolism that I, I'm only going to touch on it. And um, so, okay, uh, the goal of the game is to reach certain combinations of tiles before your opponents. And tiles have numbers and suits. It's similar, very loosely similar to our gin rummy, right? Because um, you're discarding tiles and picking tiles up and trying to get this um this run so this scene was specifically written for the film it's not in the book and it was something that michelle yo wanted because she didn't want eleanor's character to be just this total villain so it sets up her redemption scene after this um so they brought in a couple uh, Mahjong experts to create this scene and the believability that it could happen so quickly because it's usually doesn't a game like this doesn't happen yeah. that fast. Um, but they wanted to know the plausibility. Is it possible? So they brought in a couple experts to help with that. Um, when Eleanor comes in, she sits at the east side of the table and Rachel is at the west side of the table. There's your east and west symbolism and the mm-hmm. tug of war of that. Um and Rachel win, holds a winning tile, but she gives it up so that Eleanor can win. And this is all to prove that she loves Nick. She puts his future before, uh, before hers, ahead of her, her love for him. She understands that family comes first, and she proves that she is a strong, self-sacrificing woman. And these are all qualities that Eleanor didn't think Rachel had or understood being raised American. Mm-hmm. Um, and John Chu and Kevin Kwan, they they both said that like the film could have ended right there um, because it was more about and it meant so much to so many people who, you know, are American, but have a heritage that's important to them and being both of those things. And 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 then it's about that journey and your identity in this whole like love story bit is like. You know, woo woo, okay, whatever. <laughs> but like that's that's the story that they're trying to tell, like who you are and you know, where you come from and how that, you know, plays into your life now. So it's a really great scene. There's so much more to the game yeah. of Mondrong that I'm not at all capable of explaining. <laughs> um, and so much more symbolism that they discuss about, you know, the moves and things like that. Um it's a it's a great powerful scene. I just wanted to play a little clip from that scene too. And you're right, like a lot of the movie is more about Rachel's journey to acceptance and melding cultures with Eleanor. It's weird, like all the clips of the movie that were the most powerful were Rachel and Eleanor. So this is yeah. just a small clip of like the end of that mahjong game. Rachel talking to Mrs. Young. I'm not leaving because I'm scared, or because I think I'm not enough, because. 
Maybe for the first time in my life, I know I am. I just love Nick so much. I don't want him to lose his mom again. So I just wanted you to know that one day when he marries another lucky girl who is enough for you, and you're playing with your grandkids while the tanhuas are blooming and the birds are chirping, that it was because of me, a poor, raised by a single mother, low-class immigrant, nobody. Yeah, I like the last time I watched that, I cried a little bit. Yeah, to be yeah, yeah. I, I think Constance Wu, they say, you know, in some of the commentary and articles that I read that she was emotional in that scene. Like everybody was is so deeply touched by that and, you know, being accepted and you, you're knowing your your worth yeah. is, is, is universal. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's what I liked about this scene is that you didn't have to know anything about the game at all, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from that scene. You still know exactly what's going on. You're getting the emotions. It's, it, it's, um, I guess, symbolic, really the game. It could have been any game. Yeah. I, I can, had I not done any research, had I not looked into it, you're right. And, and they talk about that as well, that, you don't need to know all of this. It, it's you get it, you know. Yeah. Oh. Like Sophia said, like the they thought that it could have been like the last scene of the movie, but it is not the last scene of the movie. Um, instead, we get the trope of the lead male following the lead female to her plane and doing a, a grand speech on the plane. And in this case, Nick follows Rachel to economy class on her plane home and proposes to her again. And this time you get the surprise of him revealing his mother's ring. So Rachel knows that his mother has approved of their wedding. Either that or he stole his mother's ring. And- <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, but no. <laughs> and, and, and Rachel accepts the proposal and then they go and celebrate the engagement with friends and with frenemies. I was interested, like it's a very happy scene that they're celebrating this engagement, but there are some people there who have done some crappy things too. <laughs> mm. But I guess all is forgiven. And the engagement celebration scene takes place at the Marina Bay Sands Hotel Sky Park. And the Marina Bay Sands Hotel, you see it at the beginning of the movie, too. It's like this tri-towered building with like this like kind of kind of like a park, like a ramp over the top of all three towers. And at the top, it's got the world's highest infinity pool. It's 57 stories up and it's kind of awesome looking and for some reason they're synchronized swimmers at this engagement party because (laughs) why the hell not (laughs) yeah yeah and if you actually want to stay at this hotel it's like 299 dollars per night as a starting rate which for a hotel of that kind of luxury where you can actually use the pool isn't bad i suppose Uh, yeah it's also got luxury shops and restaurants and it's kind of an iconic um an iconic part of the singapore's skyline yeah so yeah, that's and that's the end of the movie. Woo! <laughs> so and like really quick, I'm just gonna run through. I know we're running low on time, but I'm just gonna run through a couple of other sites. So here's some other sites you might want to check out if you ever go to Singapore. 
You might want to see the Merlion sculpture at Merlion Park, which spouts water and is the symbol of Singapore. You might want to go to the Asian Civilizations Museum, which has archaeology, history, and art from all over Asia. You might want to take a break from downtown and go to Sentosa, which is another island in, of Singapore. And there's a beach called Palawan Beach that has a suspension bridge to a smaller island, or you can swim out to a smaller island. That sounds pretty cool. And you might want to go to Bukit Timah Nature Reserve, which includes Bukit Timah Hill, which is the highest point in Singapore. It's not actually that high, but like compared to the rest of Singapore, and you get a little bit of nature that way. Yeah, and so those are just some other recommendations. And if you do go to Singapore, they recommend traveling from May to September for the lowest winds and the least rain, but it will always be warm. So, and now we're going to talk about for a while about like different themes in the movie, of which there are like about a zillion, and we'll try to do our best to cover the themes and then a little bit of the criticism of the movie. So first of all, we've got dating outside of your social economic class or culture. What do you guys think about how that's dealt with in the movie? Uh, annoying. I'm going to go right away and say that that whole premise, they're, you know, together for over a year, Nick and Rachel, and he doesn't tell her about his family and all that like was an annoying thing for me the whole time and that whole deal about like how nick doesn't prepare her for any of it like in her dress and stuff like that it's like you know just i'm gonna be a jerk and say that's such a guy thing like what you look I mean, fine no. you know which how should i dress for this date i'll just wear anything and then they take you and you should be in a gown and you're like thanks a lot you know how's my hair oh good is it gonna be good for you know are we what's the mood here? And that's not so unfair to her. Like great that he loves her and accepts her just as she is. But like, you know, she should have a choice in that. <laughs> I kind of get the idea. I kind of get the idea too, that he's kind of clueless about it because like when he escapes with his friend, you know, Colin to that little Island, like Colin has to like talk to him and be like, Hey, like you're Nicholas young and you're like the golden child, but Rachel's going to run into all these problems. And it's like, he's never even thought of this before. Like he can't conceive of what it's like to be her coming into this this yeah. situation, really. Which is like, is he that? That seems oblivious to me. Like, are you that oblivious? Like, he left for a while. He was living in the states. Do you sure. know what I'm saying? Like, he has sure. no concept of like. I think he does. How can you not have any concept of like different uh, class and 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 you know what? you know economy so, so and stuff like that so basically it seemed unrealistic to you then like yes yeah okay yeah straight up i don't i kind of disagree with it being like unrealistic i i have to say that like um i don't really like talking too much about like my past <laughs> so i can okay. kind of understand um why you would like want to start new or you know you you don't want to be held back by your past lives or growing up even though that is really important and it is something that shapes you but mm -hmm. i i can kind of understand if if he wanted to have this kind of new identity why he wouldn't tell uh, rachel about it you know especially mm -hmm. if it was kind of a sore point for him which it, it seemed like it was mm -hmm. in a lot of aspects so I don't, I don't, I don't really blame him for that because I, I understand how it feels not, not necessarily being like rich, but like, I don't, I, I don't really like talking about like, <laughs> ironically where I grew up, <laughs> which is where we all grew up. <laughs> I know. What's wrong which with is funny. I know. Sorry. What? Sorry. Um, no but 
but I totally, I totally understand that. Yeah. Okay. And that's how, and that's how he brings it up. That's how he explains it. He just, it's refreshing to him to not have her know about everything. I s- yeah. Okay. I can fine. I'll give him that. But my rebuttal is if, if that's how you feel, then what's this like? Come meet my family at my Alma's special one year party. You know what I mean? Like, or how about like, this is, this is my family's life. Yeah. I, I've separated myself from it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's yeah. not what he's doing. He's like, this is my family whom I love. And of course I'm going to be in the family, but like, or do you have your own identity and, you know what I mean? You've separated yourself a touch. He's independently wealthy. He doesn't expect to inherit any of that. And so that's where uh, I don't think Nick has made that decision. Mm-hmm. And if he has decided I want to be with my family and I want this girl to be in my family, then he, I think he should have best prepared her for that and talked to her about that. Um, instead of being like, what? It's just money. Like that's, <laughs> Oh, yeah. what's the big deal? You know, like this is nothing. Whoops. You know? And like they also and then they parallel like the um the this dating like we mentioned before, Astrid and Michael are kind of a parallel situation of like dating outside your economic class. Like Michael, I think he was supposed to have been like a soldier or something, and then he became involved in the tech industry, but it's not clear if that was partly due to Astrid's help or not. And Astrid's always hiding all these like super expensive like jewelry and clothes and everything that she's always buying around the house because she doesn't want Michael to know how much she's spending and like because he's sensitive about it and he wants to be kind of like the man or whatever and so that leads to tensions with them it also leads to tensions because like I think one of the other guys calls him her toy boy at one point which has got to be really annoying and so yeah it's kind of showing how your own internal insecurities can cause trouble in this type of relationship, but then also other people might be judging you from the outside. And certainly Rachel gets judged from the outside by all those girls, like at the bachelorette party or even at the Tanhua party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, th- do you think it's a little different with Astrid and Michael because Michael is a man and there's, there's different uh, expectations of what a man's role is in a marriage as opposed to, yeah, sure. And probably different the woman, stereotypes. The bride. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I, in some ways, I think it's actually, I mean, the, after the initial point that it's going to be easier for Rachel than it it would be for Michael. Just saying. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So that's one theme, theme in the movie. And we could do a whole bunch just about that theme. But another theme that's prominent in the movie, which is dealt, which is kind of like woven in is sort of anti-Asian discrimination and a past lack of Asian representation. And I want to say at the outset that there was the movie was actually criticized quite a bit by various Asian critics for how it dealt with the topic of discrimination. But, you know, it was trying to deal with it. Like with the opening scene, you've got the young family experiencing discrimination and then overcoming it by buying the whole hotel. And like, you've also got this weird quote at the beginning, like from Napoleon Bonaparte, let China sleep for when she wakes, she will shake the world. And like, I couldn't find an explanation of why that quote was meaningful to the movie. I think it was also in the book. It oddly seems like it's like, celebrating China's success while simultaneously sounds foreboding, which to me sounds seems kind of bad. Like you don't want people to be like dreading China's success. Do you know what I mean? It's odd. Yeah. What what did you guys make of that? I suppose like people don't know China's 
worth. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. here's this, this, this cultural place. Uh, it's not even talking about like wealth financial, but just like history and, and art and, you know, things like that, that once she's awakened, it's going to shake the world and perhaps kind of like a, is it tongue in cheek? Is that the way to say it? Be like, don't wake her up. Cause when you do, Maybe they don't even comment on it uh, on the in the commentary in the film. Mm. I was hoping they would be like, "What are they going to say about that?" And they don't say a darn thing. So I'm like, "Okay, I don't know." Like we just liked it. It was a cool quote. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and then like some of the other ways they deal with discrimination or like in the movie, like is kind of making these like references to like you know parents in the U.S. used to be like, "Eat your meal." There's a lot of starving children in China, and right. so Ken Jong's character in the movie says tells his kids. There's a lot of children starving in America to get them to eat chicken nuggets, which was kind of a, a, a cute little yeah. I have to I have to admit that before before I saw that the movie, I have a coworker that quoted that all the time. Like that was like his quote and he talked about it. He talked about crazy rich Asians and he loves that scene. And I think that's a scene that really sticks out to people because maybe um, Americans aren't aware that there is a, a lot of wealth in other places. You know, I kind of feel like yeah. Americans are kind of like single focused on the greatness of America. Yeah. You and know? a lot of poverty in America. Yeah, we are one of the most unequal countries, like more unequal than Singapore, according to the research mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I want to get into like actually what the criticisms were, though, right here. We were going to do it later, but like I can do them quickly here about pertaining to like discrimination. So like some of the people who are criticizing the movie actually said that the movie dealt with discrimination against Asians poorly because instead of like kind of normalizing Asian characters speaking with an accent, for example, they have Ken Jong's character, uh, Mr. Go, he does this out, like outrageous, like fake Asian accent, right? That like, and then he's like, just kidding. I went to Cal- like university in California, Fullerton, right? And it's like, the critics were saying that it's kind of like playing into like respectability politics being like, oh, these are the like the good educated kind of Asians, you know, quote unquote. And like so it's not really necessarily um, increasing representation of all Asians. It's increasing rep- representation of like Asians who are anglicized, who speak English, who like seem more like, quote unquote, me and you. You know what I mean? One person who made that uh, criticism in particular was Mark Sang Putterman in The Atlantic magazine. And another criticism of the way that Asian representation was done in the movie was that, like, not all the actors were of Chinese descent. There were actors from Singapore, the Philippines, Japan, etc. But, like, the actors were portraying largely Chinese characters. And when you see characters who are not supposed to be Chinese on screen, they are almost always, like, servants and, like, those guards who are supposed to be scary, right, At at the Ama's party at Ama's house. And so it's like kind of showing like kind of still two levels of Asians. You know what I mean? That was one of the criticisms of the movie as well. And in the book, there were actually more like um, characters from different backgrounds in Singapore that showed up in more like hanging out at the party roles. You know what I mean? I understand for economy, they had to probably cut it down to the family members, but it does, it does seem you know, like I can understand why it would bother people specifically of Southeast Asian descent who are so used to seeing themselves portrayed as servants anyway, to still be servants in this like historical, like Asian American movie. 
Well, I mean, wasn't the movie taken from a lot of personal experiences? Yeah, but in the book, like I said, in, in Kevin Kwan's book, though, there are characters who are like maybe of Indian background or other like backgrounds of Asian, mm. Southeast Asian descent who are not just servants. So they mm-hmm. had the like, I see. What so I think it's more like that the main characters were all like in the book were all Chinese characters. And for economy, cutting down the script, they probably yeah. had to cut it down that way. But I can yeah. understand why people would be upset all the same. Yeah. I hear you. Um, I, I really don't have much comment on that because I think you've answered it. Like, yeah, yeah, there's only so much you can do from book to script, right? From you know, from yeah, that and standpoint. I, and I also think the movie probably just has tremendous pressure on itself to be like all things to all Asian people because there's been such right. a lack of representation. So mm-hmm. to be fair to the film, like you, you know, like pick your battles. Well, I'm not saying pick your battles. I think it's really important that people are are saying these things. I just like hope that, but I do think that like being that it's like almost the first of its kind in 20 years, we can't expect it to be everything yet. Like we have to just push for maybe more movies that show more diversity in the Asian population, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another thing that's very specific to sort of uh, this movie you don't just have tension between different ethnic backgrounds. You have tension within ethnic backgrounds. Like you have Mm. tension between Asian Americans and the Chinese living in Singapore. And Rachel at the beginning of the movie is really oblivious to this. She tells her mom, they're Chinese. I'm Chinese. Like kind of being like, what's not to like, but then her mom says in Chinese, she said, yeah, but you grew up here. Your face is Chinese. You speak Chinese, but here, and she points to her head. And here she points to her heart. You're different. And like this, this is very significant. I think like having lived in Korea, I can definitely say for sure that there are some major cultural differences just in how family is viewed, how your place in society is viewed, you know, how duty is viewed between the two cultures. America is so individualistic compared to a lot of Asian countries and in, in, and so this is a constant point of like battle between Rachel and Eleanor. Yeah, as you know, you've got here. It's culture, cultural differences, duty to family over pursuing one's passion, and uh, pursuing one's passion. How American, Mrs. Young says to Rachel, and but that's where okay, but that's where Rachel proves herself at the end. She does, she doesn't pursue her passion, which is her love for Nick. You know. And she gives all that up and she sticks it to Mrs. Young. <laughs> um, I have to say, I want to, I want to get this in here somehow at the end of the Mahjong scene when Rachel has, you know, you know, shown her hand and she gets up and walks away. And then Rachel's mom stands up and gives Mrs. Young a look like, that's right. That's my daughter. You can, kiss it you know and i thought that was so badass and so tough you know like just because i'm not wealthy just because i don't have all this to you know inherit to my daughter my my kid is awesome yeah <laughs> and maybe your kid's not good enough for my kid i think you know well, all of that she yeah. says that in one just her face and it's amazing 
I, I, to- I totally agree. That's such an important moment. And like, it also shows you that like, you don't have to have this big extended family clan that's really traditional to have this right. really important family bond. Like the relationship between Rachel and her mother is really demonstrating like an American, you know, parental child relationship where the parent really cares about your happiness and they want you to pursue your passion. Yeah. And maybe you're super close. Like when like Rachel first gets to like the house, she hugs Mrs. Young, which is like totally you wouldn't do right in that culture but right. in America that's a great part of our culture like showing warmth and affection to people at least I think it's great you know every I culture hate hugging. Like, <laughs> okay, so, so you'd fit right in so you'd yeah. fit right yeah. in so like yeah yeah, yeah would. like yeah there's all Don't these little <laughs> there's all these little demonstrations of like what the cultural differences are yeah which is very interesting to watch play out let's see so one thing I wanted to ask you both too like this is as good a place as any to put it is like so Rachel kind of like ends up winning by kind of meeting Mrs. Young where her culture is like, is this going to have like a long-term like health for her being able to pursue her life? Like be a professor? Like, Oh, totally. That was my big fat question at the end. I'm like, great. What about her job? What about what she's good? <laughs> you know, um, way to drop the ball on that. Or is that going to be answered in the next one? I don't, yeah, know. I don't what know. What does that look like in the in the tr- trilogy? Yeah, I don't um, know. Yeah, a very fine question. Any anybody thoughts? Is it is it implied that she's gonna move to Singapore? Or I thought it was kind of implied that they're going to New York, that they're moving to New York. So why wouldn't she go back to her career? I don't think it's settled at all at the end. I think you really get the idea that Nick is going to, I thought Nick was going to go back to Singapore. That's the impression I was left with because like uh, the alternative is that either like, his cousin Alistair or like, who's the other one? I don't know. Somebody else would get the business and they would mess it up. Oh. Basically. I can't they I just don't know. go back and forth. They're rich. Well, right. <laughs> like, yeah, I... that, isn't that the dream? Like you can have your New York life and your Singapore life and just take really expensive plane rides back and forth. Yeah. Maybe I got that impression because it's like Rachel is kind of bowed to Eleanor's culture more than I think Mrs. Young is really bowed to Rachel's culture. Like, mm. so maybe that's where I got the impression they're going to go to Singapore. I don't know. But I definitely want to read the rest of the books and find out what happens now. Yeah. Because I get Any the more? feeling that the second book picks up Astrid's thread. And that's what I read. What happens to her. So. Yeah. So then obviously another theme in the movie is excess and wealth. And like this movie <laughs> is just like full of just excessively expensive things. Like the wedding is supposed to be $40 million. Um, Astrid's earrings, $1.2 million. Like, so this, this is my biggest problem with the movie because like, I just don't think anybody should have that much money. Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that it's good for society for anybody to have that much money. What are your thoughts? It's unfathomable to me. Um, I I agree. I don't think people should have, like, there should be a cap. But um, I just want the student debt to be canceled. Because it's true that, like, (laughs) if we cancel student debt, imagine what that would do for the economy. And I'm like, I have a list. Here's what I would do with that money. I would totally benefit the economy. I'd be hiring people to redo my house. I would spend, we would go on like two vacations a year, not just one. Um, you know, we would, we would do like spend money on like, I don't know, outdoorsy things and, and backpack and hike and stay over places. Like I have a ton of things that I would, (laughs) 
Yeah. If you that didn't have student sense. debt, is that is that what you're saying? If you didn't have yeah. student debt, you yeah. If we didn't have, oh. you to- you totally have a good point, Sophia. Because like one of those like twenty three thousand dollar or whatever private suites on the plane, like people can live off of that for a year. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I oh think God. there's an aspect. I think there's an aspect of wealth that people don't see or understand or think about is that how many jobs are provided by the wealthy and jobs that are well-paying and that are good. I mean, think about the person who had to organize that $40 million wedding. Like they're not getting paid pennies. There were artists and artistry that went into all of those things. And those are jobs. And those are jobs that are that people are doing and that want to do that, you know, you think that they cater to the rich, but, and it is, but those people are also living well. And I I don't really see a a problem with that. I would rather the government taxed all the wealth that they have though, and then take that money and use it to fight climate change. Personally. I mean, I, I mean, I agree on that aspect, but I think in a society, like we've decided that that's not, important uh, i mean like we maybe in the u.s and maybe in some of these other countries but there's definitely countries in the world where they've decided it is important and i think they're functioning better they have lower levels of inequality they have most of them have like higher level like higher like lifespans are longer things like that and they have functioning healthcare systems and like i just watched this movie and i just feel like i love the movie i think it's so much fun and you're taking on this ride and you think oh like part of you is like oh i want to live like that but then the other part of me is like that wedding could have paid for how many people's college educations? Like that wedding could have like paid for how many people's mortgages? I don't know. It makes me sad at the same time. I don't know. Well, I agree to some extent, but I, I just, I, a human nature gets in the way. I don't, I think that's idealistic at best that, uh, that anything is really going to change. Oh God. I hope you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I do too, but I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I'm surround like being in the islands here, like I'm surrounded by there's mega, mega yachts um, that are here that are so much money. And, you know, there's p- things that, and I think people don't really have like a concept of like how much money that is, like mm-hmm. how, like what a billionaire actually is yeah. um, a, a good, yeah. a good reference that I, I like to tell people is that, what, the difference between like a millionaire and a billionaire because people are like oh a millionaire like you're rich but like no like a billionaire is a different kind of rich if you're and i the the example i use is in seconds so a million seconds is about 12 days and a billion seconds is 31 years oh so that's God. like the, oh my so God. that's, that's, so that's the difference example. when we talk about the difference in um, when you're saying inequality, like that is the difference. I would probably say that the young family, do you think they're billionaires? I would oh, say so. <laughs> yeah. I would say so. So, I mean, I do understand what you're saying about that sort of inequality because the billionaire class is, is different, but I don't, I don't know how you're going to get those people to give that up. So, so like this was also, I just wanted to point out too, like to tie it into the criticisms of the film. So this was another common criticism of the film though. Like the guy I referenced before, Mark Sang Putterman, he called the movie affluence porn. Um, and then Fatima Bhutto of, in The Guardian wrote that it, the movie is best described as a celebration of transnational plutocracy. And she said, to be crazy rich at a time of catastrophic inequality is not a victimless crime. 
And she just was pointing out like the severe inequality in countries like China and India and even Singapore. And like, I just like, for me, I can't not have it on my mind. I do think that we can still change. I think there is broad support politically for things like raising taxes on the wealthy and raising the minimum wage. The problem is a lot of the politicians in our system, especially in the US in particular, are getting donations from these same kind of people. So it's not that most people don't want there to be more equality, really. It's more that like our political system is run on money too. I, I mean, I, a question that I always like asking asking people is like, what if tomorrow you had that amount of money? Like, all I, I guess there's like the lottery question. Like, mm-hmm. I I personally can't can't say that I would do wonderful, great things with it. I might go buy a yacht. I might go have a party in a barge in the middle of the ocean just because I can. Because So I don't really judge other people for like how they spend their money, even if they are billionaires, because I, I honestly don't know what I would do with that kind of money. Maybe I would spend my money on million dollar earrings too, you know? I a hundred percent wouldn't. So like I'm coming from the perspective, yeah. like, like I would, fi- I would try to find somebody who manages money and try to figure out like, what would I need every year to like have a, a decent house, maybe be able to travel a few times a year and like not have to worry about unexpected health expenses And then honestly, like the rest of that money, I would try to disperse to like either like climate change related projects, like, you know, like planting trees, for example, or like maybe scholarships or helping refugees. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like Rick Steves, you know, who runs the travel, Rick Steves, who runs that travel corporation, for example, like he's an example of somebody who has given away, he's not as wealthy as these people, mind you, but he actually bought a, a whole building and land for a homeless shelter with some of his money from his company. And like, I love him all even during, more now. Oh, God. Yeah. And I also, all during Steve. this pan, also, all during this pandemic, he has been paying all the salaries of the people who work for his company, even though his company is basically at a standstill. So I think like there are people like who are like really like capitalists, but they're like trying to do, you know, kind of what's right. And like, mm-hmm. I, d- I really think there's a lot of people like that who they would take their money and put it to good use, but our society, society as a whole is what needs to change. The laws are what needs to change. We can't just rely on individual people, you know, because then we end up with stuff like what Elon Musk, who's like, I'm hoarding all this money so I can like take us all to space. And I'm like, dude, I didn't ask you to, I just want to save this planet. <laughs> I know. I know. Can we- I'm over it. I'm over earth. Let's throw yeah. in the towel. <laughs> I mean, Mars is a lot harder. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, uh, I'm sort of kidding, but not really. <laughs> That's okay. We dis- we thrive on disagreement <laughs> on the show. So. Yeah. I covered um, Mary Vote, the costume designer, and um, the production designer and the set designer. So instead of going over every detail about those things, if you two have a specific question about a costume or a set or anything, yeah. go ahead well, and I- ask and I'll just... So, Sophia, I just wanted to ask you, since you did all this research, like, what were some of the costumes that were your favorites that you found out about doing the research? Um, you know, it's it's interesting. Chu and Quan talk about the comment in the commentary of the film. They're like, yeah, if, if you know the fashion, you know the fashion. Like, they didn't sit through and go through everybody's costume and be like, that was Ralph Lauren. That was Versace. That was whatever. The one thing they did make a point of commenting, though, is Pake Lynn's, um dog-patterned pajamas are Stella <laughs> McCartney. Like, those are... <laughs> 
That's uh, couture, couture pajamas. Yeah. And um, she shows up to like a super fancy party wearing these. And then she gets changed into the one of the dresses in her, in the back of her car, which was hilarious. I'll yeah. say things as far as like mood and tone that they were trying to create. Like when Rachel and Nick are in New York, quote unquote, they try, they kept that palette, like neutrals, black, white, tan. And then when they go to Singapore, it's like color. So things like this, um, they wanted, um, Rachel to have like a Cinderella, you know, feel when she goes to the wedding and, um, Nick's Nick's suits were all made for him, which I thought was very interesting. And his white suit at Amma's party, you know, was supposed to give this feel of, you know, Gatsby. I'll just I'll just leave that as an oh, overview and, of costumes unless you have anything else. Yeah, I just like you said that the so at Araminta's wedding they actually have water kind of like flood the wedding hall and you said the dress was made to get wet. Yep, to, it's to, waterproof. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that so, wild? Yeah. How how you do that? Like with what material? Like swimsuit material? I don't know, but it was like if it got wet, squeeze it out and it was dry. Maybe it's just <laughs> that stuff that you like spray. You know that like waterproofing spray? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. I, I love that stuff. That stuff's amazing. You can make anything waterproof with that. Oh, and then you also said, Sophia, you said you found out that the that the Eleanor's emerald ring was actually Michelle Yeoh's ring. Yes. So Chu and Quan said that um Michelle Yeoh provided her own emerald ring. That ring is her personal property that after every film she buys herself a gift. She gifts herself something. And that was from some completed film she did. And that's her ring in real nice. life. Oh, it's beautiful. I like it jewels. Is. Okay. If I had money, I'd, I'd wear jewels. <laughs> You'd See? be seeing me. See? Not me. Listen, not I'm me. so bad. <laughs> I do like fancy things, but even then I don't think my level of fancy would is anywhere near in the billion. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I can't mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. go there. You'd figure I, it out. You'd figure it out. You probably no, no, could. No. Probably could. But like, <laughs> I'd be wearing these these gigantic jewels with just like my old navy jeans and t shirt, like right. <laughs> like at the playground on a play day. <laughs> so then, in terms of like in terms of the production design, like was there anything like like that really stood out to you, like that you were impressed by the most, or? Yeah, um, the uh, Amma's house, those two abandoned mansions, you know, they talk about like the jungle had taken over. Well, that when I finally saw pictures, I mean, it was a mess and there was like monkey poop all over (laughs) everything. But for like the time and the budget, they truly transformed it. It is so beautiful. And so the film itself, we've talked about it being like a $30 million budget. and they had to create like the wedding, which is supposed to be a $40 million wedding. Do you know what I mean? So to create yeah. these, you know, this ancestral wealth and and yeah. new wealth and all that with their budget, I think is phenomenal and and brilliant and amazing. Because I, I mean, I believed it. Didn't you believe it? You're like, sure, oh, yeah. that house exists just like that. There was no like falseness about it. So yeah. And I'm impressed by you said in the notes that they hand painted all the lanterns at the wedding and they just went into so much detail on this film to make the details right. Yeah. Yeah. All the, I feel like everything through the commentary was just like how little time they had normally to create what they created. They would need more time. Um, 
budget and things like, you know, Singapore doesn't have um, prop houses. You know, they bought a lot of stuff in antique shops and custom made stuff and um, and how hot it was. <laughs> Yeah. Like it was steaming. It was it was ungodly. And we were trying and that they all aren't sweating. Nobody sweats. I don't I don't like that. That's a lie to me. I'm like, come on, even rich people <laughs> well, sweat. And it's <laughs> but it but it looks bad in a movie. It like it's, it signals something to you if somebody sweats in a movie. You think they're nervous. So like it's just, uh, you know, film. True, language, true, right? true. But all right, so, that's all I got on that. And if Jen, you want to yeah, say something about I'm gonna, the music, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna whirl yeah. through. Yeah, I'm gonna whirl through soundtrack and music really quick. Like mainly, I was impressed by the music supervisor Gabe Hilfer. Um, he has a lot, 128 credits and things that stuck out to me. He also did the music for Luke Cage and Treme, which are two TV series with impeccable soundtracks. Okay, impeccable. Mm-hmm. And then he also did the music on Longshot, which was the second movie we reviewed for the podcast which also has a great soundtrack. But if you look at his credits on IMDb, just amazing movies he's done and amazing TV shows. And um, the soundtrack, they wanted it to be a blend of Chinese pop songs from the fifties and sixties with modern Chinese pop song covers. And Chu told the courts, I want to hit American songs and make them Chinese to give audiences a sense of how we feel as Asian Americans, that crazy blend of identities and cultures that makes up who we are. I think they super succeeded um, the cover, it opens up with money. That's what I want covered by Malaysian singer, Cheryl Kay. And she actually was submitted an audition through YouTube to get on the soundtrack. So that's pretty cool. And she, she is not incredibly successful right now though. Apparently she recently auditioned for American Idol and didn't even get through. So I'm like, Oh, <laughs> and then, um, one of the traditional Chinese songs that they had from the fifties, Wo Yao Ni Dei. So that song appears twice, first in the original Chinese, sang by Grace Chang. And then later there's a jazz singer, a contemporary jazz singer named Jasmine Chen from China. She appears in the movie twice um, at Amma's party and then at the wedding reception singing that song. She's pretty successful, has at least one album. She performs live quite a bit. And yeah. And the original actress who pioneered that song or the original person who pioneered that song was an actress, too, with 34 credits. And then my personal favorite was the Material Girl cover, which is by Taiwanese Canadian singer Sally Ye. And she's released 30 albums and she works in a genre called Canto Pop, which is Cantonese pop music. And she has 27 acting credits too, including John Woo's The Killer, for which she provides music. Yeah. So I'm super excited. I want to know more about her. And then the wedding sing has the beautiful cover of Elvis Presley's Can't Help Falling in Love with You, um, performed by Kina Granis. And she's Japanese-American singer-songwriter. She has six albums, and her work has appeared in a number of other, like, movies and TV shows. Mm-hmm. And then, like, finally, I just want to mention Yellow, the cover of the Coldplay song by Catherine Ho. And she was a student at USC and a former competitor for The Voice, on The Voice, when she got chosen to do this cover. And John M. Chu, like, personally actually had to write Coldplay to convince them to let them use the song because I guess Coldplay had been accused of cultural appropriation at one point. I don't know what for exactly, but Chu wrote to Coldplay, the word yellow has always had a negative connotation in my life until Mm. I heard your song. It immediately Mm. became an anthem for me and my friends and gave us a new sense of pride we never felt before. So kind of using the song was kind of him like sort of reclaiming, you know, the word yellow that's applied to like Asian people quite often and making it this positive thing and this emotional ending of the movie. So like we're going to finish up now with 
like really quick, give some favorite or least favorite scenes, and then we'll do our double feature ideas. So any favorite or least favorite scenes from you guys? There were there were a lot of favorite scenes. I like the scenes where they're having food, the friends uh, together at the, you know. The Newton food court. The Newton yeah. food court. And then the dumplings with Ama and the yeah. family together. Um, I really, after the commentary, especially, I really liked the, um, w- especially what it took to create the Ama's um, party scene and mm. what they did filmmaking wise and set and, and the introduction of all these people uh, that became one of my favorites as well. And the mom at the end, Rachel's mom looking yeah. at Mrs. Whoa, my favorite. Okay. And, and my total yeah. favorite, this is like now become my favorite makeover scene in any movie actually <laughs> is the second makeover scene with Aquafina and, or rather Picklin and Ollie. And I just love the, like the commentary they're making on all these crazy dresses. Like my favorite was Aquafina said, you look like a slutty Ebola virus. <laughs> and then, and then and I can't remember which one of them says this, but one of the dresses, they say, you look like a flower, a sad, lonely flower. No one wants to be around. <laughs> and just like, it's the best, like funny, like commentary makeover scene with also the material girl cover over it, which I love that song anyway. And then she has the perfect dress that Marquesa blue beautiful dress and so yeah guilt like fashion is a guilty pleasure of mine I still contend I would not spend oh. like so much money on fashion but I love watching fashion I love looking mm. at it mm-hmm. fair enough I can tell you what one of like my least favorite scenes were for yeah. for whatever reason I really disliked the the first part of when they get to Araminta's bachelorette party and you think it's gonna be i don't know classy or something and then she yells like shopping spree (laughs) for some reason i just thought that was a little like off character or something like i'm like these people are already rich like why would they why would they think that that was a big deal i just felt like that was off but then the character said no one loves free stuff more than rich people i mean and Mm. like in um kevin kwan's book he says that a lot of rich people are actually really cheap like about things okay like, I don't know, like just from reading Kevin Fair enough. Book, Fair enough. book, I get the impression that there's also like a frugality within the excess, which is weird for real. Like maybe, maybe a lot of the friends are kind of like hanger honors or something like trying to get like the scraps from these mega, mega rich people. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Well, then I just didn't like parents, the scene. Their parents could be controlling their money too, I guess. Yeah. Mm, yeah. But yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it did seem totally kind of odd. Yeah, for sure. It was a little over the top. But maybe that was the <laughs> unlike <point>. Bernard's, <laughs> unlike Bernard's bachelor. <laughs> that was cool, though. That was cool. <laughs> you should see the deleted scene then, where they show more of Bernard's bachelor party. You can find oh, really? Bernard, yeah. <laughs> Any other favorite or least favorite, Serena? Um, I really did like the wedding. I I thought the wedding. I I was just as surprised as the wedding patrons when they uh the water came out. I was like, wow, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. Like I I I don't really like weddings or like things <laughs> like that, but I was like, I'd go to that wedding. That looks cool. And they all had those little like glow sticky like tree branches or something. What was that? They were supposed to be fireflies. Oh, yeah. is that what it was? Okay, I I don't know. I it was lost on me. Okay, so now we're doing our going to go ahead and do our last section, which is our double feature ideas, and we'll each take a turns giving one of our double features. So the first thing I recommend everyone should go and watch is if you want to see Aquafina in a more serious role, I really recommend her Golden Globe winning performance in The Farewell, which is in 2019 movie, and also an Asian cast. So check it out. 
My first recommendation is In the Mood for Love, directed by Wong Kar Wai. It was cited as a visual influence for the film. And uh, he is also a very influential filmmaker in you know Asian filmmaking. And he's got several art house films that are uh, imperative to watch. And he's Definitely. it's on Criterion right now. Uh, well, when I was trying to think of movies, I was like trying to rack my brain about what was a movie that had such an obvious like economic difference or like the idea of a uh, royal family and like a normal <laughs> person, which seems to happen a lot, but I couldn't come up with anything specifically except for 2004's The Prince and Me. Have you guys seen this movie? It's atrocious. Of course you do. Of course you do. Yes. Now, you probably love it because it's because it takes place in Wisconsin. Like that was like exact, the real yes, reference. Yes, girl. Yes, girl. That is one of the top reasons why I love it. <laughs> it just cracks me up because of course you can relate to it. Like, what would happen if I, a lowly Wisconsin girl, were whisked away? Where is he, Denmark or some shit? Where yeah. and become you know dating the Prince of Denmark? Like it's so ridiculous, but also kind of wonderful. I don't know. Uh, Did you really not know that that's like one of the movies that has been mentioned the most on this podcast? That Sophia no, really no. <laughs> Yep, me guilty. I guess I missed that. I guess me. I missed that. But Sorry. for everything you just said, that's right. Girl from Wisconsin, right. <laughs> represent. Like I love it. And isn't isn't there a reference to where like the reason why he chooses Wisconsin is because he thinks all the women are like bare breasted or something like that Love Actually shit. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. yeah why are people from Wisconsin represented like that? All right, so that okay. that's my nice, nice. <laughs> okay, so um, my my second recommendation. I'm going to really quick out spit out two Constance Wu titles: The Feels, the 2017 rom com she did where she's one of the leads in a lesbian relationship, and Hustlers, the 2019 movie where she plays a, one of a group of strippers with Jennifer Lopez who are conning men out of their money. And of the two movies, I actually like Hustlers better and her performance is super good in that movie, but both of them are definitely worth checking out. Um, so I'm also going to suggest um, directed by Akira Kurosawa on Criterion. Um, and so it's like directed by him and it's all of his films. And he's known for Rashomon and Seven Samurai. So again, kind of a, founder and huge influence of uh asian film must sees get your asian film basics down yeah girl (laughs) go to you gotta go to criterion there's so much there's like korean you know and then there's like jackie chan stuff i mean it's it's where you gotta go yeah it's a great service it's a great service for foreign films and asian films yeah my second choice was, um, or is, a simple favor, just because it stars Henry Golding, and I, I want to see more of him, uh, mm-hmm. and he kind of has like a, uh, it has a two female leads, are Anna Kendrick and Blake Lively, who are super popular, and then he kind of plays like the love interest of of both of them, not to give too much away. Um but it, it was, I remember he stuck out to me because he is so unique looking and just handsome and has this gorgeous accent. And I just, I, I find him very attractive and that's shallow of me, but um, I'd watch him read a, a cereal box. So Dude, it's well, not a simple it's favor not is not a cereal box. It's, it's kind of entertaining. It kind of goes weird places, but if you want to see um, Henry Golding being right. hot. <laughs> 
Yeah, and for that same reason, I am going to say for my last recommend for my last recommendation, I'm not going to be a troll and say that you should see Parasite by Bong Joon Ho just to have like economic inequality shoved in your face. Although I just kind of did, but <laughs> you just um, did it, and that's yeah, all right. That's yeah. okay. But um, for, for my last official pick, I will choose the 2019 film Last Christmas because it has Henry Golding and Michelle Yeoh are both in the film. She does not play his mother, and it's actually it's kind of a cheesy film to be honest, but like it's not bad. It, I, I would watch it around Christmas and it's heartwarming and set in Britain and just it's, it, I would definitely watch it over love. Actually. I think that movie's totally overrated. So yeah. check out last Christmas. If you want more Henry Golding in a romantic role. Awesome. I do. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so these kind of go together cause we've talked about them. And if you haven't seen joy, luck club and crouching tiger, hidden dragon, you gots to, um, cause they're beautiful films and, that's it. All right. <laughs> I concur. I concur. Yes. <laughs> Again, I was trying to think of like movies that had like really obvious cross culture um, issues, I guess. And so uh, I picked my big fat Greek wedding that came out in 2002. Uh, mm-hmm. I love this movie and it, it is just about, you know, entering into a different culture um, in a, marriage or in a relationship which i think can be really difficult and i guess that's kind of a a trope isn't it for a lot of romantic comedies for sure but it's so true it's so true it is really hard to enter into another culture yeah big fat greek wedding my people (laughs) that's one of my faves as well um yes i think those I think those are some great picks from everybody, and we're going to wind up the show now. Um, Just a reminder, you can always check us out at everyromcom.com and give us feedback at feedback at everyromcom.com. Let us know what you thought of the movie, um, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, any thoughts that you might have. And thanks so much for joining us today. Yep. Thanks, Thanks, everybody.